You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's final lesson, The Pearl and the Sower, Daphne Edwards will make clear to us the value of the Kingdom of Heaven and the importance of possessing it. Then Rob Worthing, in great detail, will explore the vital parable of the sower. We must all understand. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our upcoming modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to our students for today's teaching. Welcome to Arise Academy. This is the last week of the student talks, so ably given on the parables Jesus told in the Gospels. My choice is the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, but I'll pray before I start the reading. So Lord, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for Arise Academy. We thank you for stretching us as students and we just pray tonight you will give me clarity and the hearers will be blessed. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read from Matthew 13, um, verses 44 to 46. When I chose my character, I chose Lydia and there was one verse for her and... (laughs) When I chose my parable and I looked at it, there was one verse for this. I thought, oh my goodness, I've done this again. But um, there's two that go together. So I've says you can't separate them. So it starts at verse 44 in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. As we've heard over the weeks, Jesus made many of his points by means of parables and stories. And the students have so ably done that in the previous week. You can't really separate these two parables from one another. They're twin parables. And Jesus doesn't separate them either because in verse 45 he says, again, again the kingdom of heaven is like, and goes on to give another example. Jesus spoke in parables and stories, perhaps a means of sorting out his followers, discovering who had come, not just because of miracles, because by now the word has certainly spread of what was happening in the region. Many people were coming and heard of all the miracles that he had done. So he wanted to see who really wanted to understand his teachings. It is still like that today, isn't it? He wants our wholehearted surrender of our lives. He is a jealous God and he wants our lives to be wholly his. So he wanted his followers to know the real meaning of his teachings. After all, he wasn't looking for just disciples. He was looking 
he was looking for disciples, not just followers, those who would dig deeper into his meanings of what he was saying. There was so much misunderstanding, even amongst the disciples, about the nature of his kingdom that he needed to straighten them out one point at a time. He took everyday examples like sheep, farm, fields, crops, sower seeds, examples that would mean everyday life to those listening and would help them to understand. Matthew, the writer of the book, or some say the man behind it, but definitely most think Matthew was the writer of the book. It was written in AD 70. He was a controversial character, a despised tax collector who worked for the Roman government. I've recently been listening to The Chosen, um, Eilis' recommendation, and I really got into it after a while. Um, Matthew is depicted in a really enlightening way and it really helped me to understand what he was like and the way he was received as he came to Christ and had to give up his tax collecting to follow Jesus. The theme of Matthew's Gospel is Jesus Christ as King. He wrote his Gospel to explain to Jewish people that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But you know, the Jews are waiting for a soldier saviour, a military person to come, somebody who would come with a sword, not somebody who came as a shepherd and a carpenter. He came as a suffering servant, didn't he? As was prophesied in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. They didn't expect him to be born in a manger with sheep and cattle, but to be born in a palace, perhaps with gold and riches. But Jesus was authoritative, confrontational, but yet outrageously loving and gentle. Israel's view of freedom was short-sighted and narrow, and their picture of God was small. But Jesus doesn't demonstrate power as men do. The Lord Almighty was offering his blood, the only blood sufficient to pay for all sins, for all time, for all believers. It's interesting, you know, Matthew starts off his gospel with a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, back to David and Abraham, a link between the Old and the New Testament. He speaks about the son of David and the son of Abraham, meaning Jesus was in the lineages of the two of the most significant figures in biblical history. He was indeed the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. So again, Matthew is depicting Jesus as the King. Jesus had come to set up his kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. As we know in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In John 18, 36, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right, Pilate, I am a king. 
In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus declares he is a king. The two parables of the treasure and pearl are showing the reader the value of the kingdom of God. And it's worth giving all we have to make sure of it. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two terms used throughout this gospel. These terms lie at the heart of Jesus' teaching. Matthew was writing primarily for Jewish readers, therefore he normally speaks about the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke prefer the alternative kingdom of God as an easier expression for non-Jews to understand. Why, you may ask? Because to a devout Jew, the word God was far too sacred to be used lightly or frequently. That's why Matthew used, more, more often than not, the kingdom of heaven. So when John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Christ to come, burst onto the scene, it's to announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No wonder he was immediately surrounded by crowds of excited people who had come to witness the long-expected display of God's ruling power in history. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It was near because Jesus was coming. He was going to come as a, John had prepared the way for him to come. The one that John was not worthy to untie his shoes and one who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew 12, 28, it says, But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. His miracles, and especially his exorcisms, testify to the fact that God's sovereign rule is breaking in upon man. Matthew 16, 19, I will give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom? It's a place where God rules. It's unlike any worldly kingdom where satanic and human influences vie for control and power. God alone reigns in the kingdom of heaven. And his kingdom is both a present reality and a future expectation. I don't know what your theology is as I was writing this. And I've often wrestled with the question, why does not everyone get healed? If people line up in a healing line, you know, some get, it seems that some get healed and some don't. And I've often said to Phil, why is that? But I suppose I've worked it out myself and what do you think really? As students, what do you think? That sometimes we just see the kingdom breaking in and we see, healings here and there and like we see in revivals now here and there it's not happening everywhere it's just a sign of the kingdom breaking through so that's where I've got to with my theology really otherwise I think you can come away disappointed why didn't they get healed why didn't this happen because now we haven't got the kingdom in its fullness we will when Jesus comes again and establishes his rule on earth then everything will be perfect. So that sometime in the future, the kingdom of heaven 
will be a literal domain where Christ rules. Meanwhile, the kingdom exists in the hearts of everyone who worships Christ as Lord. In Luke 17, 21, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor your observing all the laws, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So those who have received Jesus Christ, he has come to live us, live within us and set his kingdom up within us. So the kingdom is of great value and it's worth everything to give everything up to possess it. So let's go back to the text about these two parables and allow me some artistic license, please. <laughs> so the treasure is found by a poor man. He came across it by accident. Again, as I was thinking about this, I thought about the programme on BBC, The Detectorists. It's a comedy series about two friends who go in search of their heart's desire with a couple of metal detectors. I think you might have seen them on Hastings Beach, don't you, with their metal going about trying to find something of value on the beach, and I'm sure some of them do. And I found this article about a detectorist who did find treasure. In fact, he discovered a me medieval ring worth up to 40,000 pounds when it was auctioned. David Bald unearthed the treasure near Thorncombe in February 2019, just three months after buying a metal detector. I bet he was made up, don't you? <laughs> The gold and diamond ring is thought to have been a gift from wealthy 14th century landowner Sir Thomas Brooke to his wife, Lady Joan. She must have lost it, I reckon. Mr. Ball described it as a once-in-a-lifetime find. He said, I got permission from a farmer friend of mine. I did a bit of research and found one of the fields was called Bowling Green and it was far, quite flat. So that's where he found his treasure. So going back to this poor man, he was engaged in his daily toil, expecting little, rather bored as he ploughed his field. And then suddenly his ploughshare hit a box. He dug it up, opened it, and precious jewels cascaded from it. He was thrilled to bits and quickly hid it again until he could go and buy the field. Was it ethically dubious? Apparently not by Jewish law. If a man finds scattered money, it belongs to the finder. I don't, know, I don't think that's our law here, but anyhow. We've got a solicitor here, so I won't argue that one. It's well known that first century Romans have buried their valuables in clay pots in the ground. Under Jewish law, if a labourer discovered buried treasure and lifted it out, the find would belong to the owner of the land, who is typically a Roman citizen. So the finder in this parable does not lift the buried treasure until he owns the land. Smart move, don't you think? 
But I don't think Jesus is concerned about the morality of the labourer. He is focused on the labourer's joy of discovery and subsequent action to acquire the land. Have you ever found treasure and felt the joy of finding something? There's something exciting, isn't there, about finding a fiver on the floor? It's, I mean, Phil has often found money on the floor. But one day, I was, when we lived in West London, I was walking along our high street in Eastcote and I walked past an ATM. And as I was walking past it, money was pouring out. Literally, it was pouring out. And so I looked around, I thought it might have been on candid camera, you know, because I thought, this is ridiculous. It just kept pouring out and it was falling on the floor. So I thought, this is, well, I better do something. Anyhow, I didn't move on. I went, I picked it all up and it was about a hundred pound that had come out of the machine. It just kept pouring it out. So I was then faced with a hundred pounds in my hand. What do I, what do I do with it? And there's always that, it's sort of like a test really. Are you going to keep it, put it in your pocket or are you going to hand it in? Well, perhaps if it was a fiver, I would have kept it because it was a hundred pounds. So I went into the film society that it was coming out of. And I said to the woman, I found this coming out of the machine. Well, she looked at me suspicious anyhow, because she probably thought, well, that's a likely story. And I said, well, I work in the soup kitchen. I was just coming in to tell you I'd found this. Would you like to donate it to the soup kitchen? And, but she didn't want to donate it and she just, <laughs> She just took it and thanked me for, for handing it in. And I never heard anything. They never made a donation or anything. So that was one of my stories of finding treasure or money. So the point of this parable is quite clear, really, in that some people discover the worth of the kingdom by accident, like he was just ploughing and he came across treasure. Just some people just suddenly discovered Jesus. They're ploughing through life when suddenly, against all odds or all expectation, they find treasure. What a marvellous picture of discovering Jesus. He is worth any sacrifice to secure. I've got another little story here of um, when I worked in Elim with the homeless and I got a call one day to help this man who was in a hostel and he was having problems. His wife had died and he had given up everything. He had left his house and decided to go on the streets. He had uh, like nursed her with cancer. And I think the whole thing had got too much. He couldn't bear the thought of living in the home on his own. And he just hit the streets. And that's why some of the people that we see on our streets today are just regular guys, you know, professionals. They're not all what we would call a dropout, but they are people that have come across hard times and can't cope with life. Anyhow, I got this call to, if I could help this guy called Alan. And he came to Elin and he came to the soup kitchen and he had nowhere to live. And eventually I managed to get him in some alms houses with the local church, Church of England church, St Mary's, had some alms houses and the vicar very kindly allowed him to have one of these alms houses and he's still there today, which is amazing really. But as he kept serving and coming to the soup kitchen, I could see he kept developing and developing until one day he, he sort of had a, 
an epiphany, a, 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 mo a moment that he saw Jesus. And he was a different person from there on. He just suddenly changed. He had some knowledge of God, but he, it just was theory. But this day, he said something had happened to him. And he would often tell me stories of how when he was on the streets under Hammersmith flyover that at night when he was sleeping that he felt angels came to minister to him and just leave money or leave a coat. And he saw that as God looking after him through all those years. But I could see that he had found the treasure, the hidden treasure, Jesus had come to him. So we go on to the next connecting parable. The pearl of great value is found by a rich man this time. He came across it after a long and patient search. So I'm going to tell you now a little bit about pearls, how a pearl is formed. Did you know this? So contrary to popular belief, pearls hardly ever result from a grain of sand intruding into the oyster shell. Instead, a pearl forms when an irritant, such as a parasite, becomes trapped in the mollusk. As a defence mechanism, a fluid is used to coat the irritant. Layer upon layer of this coating is deposited until a lustrous pearl is formed. I think that's amazing, really, that just that process can produce something of such great value. Freshwater pearls can take between six one to six years to form and saltwater pearls may take between five and 20 years. So the longer the pearl stays in the shell, the more coating that forms and the larger the pearl. So this man is a pearl fancier by profession. He probably already had a number of pearls, but he knew perfection when he saw it. And he had never seen perfection until he discovered this pearl. A most illuminating picture of the kingdom and the king. There are other pearls in the market. There are other things of great value, but none to compare with the pearl of great value or price. Again, that is how some people find the kingdom of God. They may try many different things, different ideologies, religions, studies of all kind, but one day they find the loveliest thing in the world, which was how the ancients rated a really fine pearl, and they give all to gain it. So perhaps you know someone who has tried many things but has remained unsatisfied. But one day you told them about Jesus. They started reading their Bible, they went on an Alpha course, and they found the pearl of great value after their long search. I often watch um, David Attenborough's um, nature things, and some of the photography is amazing, isn't it? And often I've said, I wonder why he hasn't seen God in all the amazing things he's seen in the world, and just some phenomenal things he's seen. And how can he not believe there is a God of creation? And I read this about him. He, it says, Sir David Attenborough does not believe that an understanding of evolution is compatible with faith in God. He will tell Radio 4 listeners on Sunday. 
This was in 2012, so quite a while ago. Attenborough, who was invited back to Desert Island Discs to mark the 70th anniversary of the radio programme, explains that while he is still agnostic, he does not rule out the possibility of the existence of a de deity. So let's pray that before he goes home, to wherever his home be, he finds Jesus, because he's in his 80s, I believe, now. I pray his journey does not end until he finds the treasure. So the message of these twin parables is clear. People find the kingdom in many ways. Some come upon it by accident, some come upon it after a long and patient search, but it's immensely worthwhile however we come upon it. It is treasure, it's a beautiful pearl, it's worth any sacrifice. I suppose I was reminded of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21, while I was preparing this. He wanted to get eternal life. He did really want the real treasure. He had obeyed all the commandments, but Jesus knew one thing was stopping him, his riches. And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. It says he went away sad because he didn't want to lose what he had to gain the pearl of great price. But I do wonder if he had given up his riches to gain the treasure, God then would have restored his riches but he wasn't prepared to do one to gain the other. So I feel a bit sad for him, really. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. To me, it's like a two-way example. We have found this treasure the one who died and gave his life for us. And in return, we become his treasure possessions, loved by God. So it seems to me to be a two-way thing, because we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're royalty. Have you ever thought that? Never mind about King Charles, we're royalty as well. Sons and daughters of God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's amazing. Just let that sink in. We don't always live like we're royalty. We sometimes live like we're paupers, but we are royalty. God paid the ultimate price in sending Jesus to give his life for us. For those of us who have found the treasure, let us forever be thankful and long to bring others into the kingdom so they too can find this treasure. Amen. Good evening, my name's Bob. And Phil has asked me to speak on a parable, and I've chosen the parable of the sower. Now, the reason I've chosen the parable of the sower is that it was my school parable. And what you have to imagine is a small private grammar school in Manchester. And you have to imagine a speech day evening as a hall in Manchester. 
and we're all there in our uniforms and we have to chant the parable of the sower. So it went, behold, the sower went forth to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell on the wayside and some on the rocky ground. You go all the way through, we're chanting all the way through until we get to the good soil. Some seed fell on the good soil and it produced some 30-fold. A third of the school stands up, 30-fold. Some 60-fold, two-thirds of the school stand up. And some 100-fold, and the small diminutive headmaster raises his hands to the air. And that's the parable of the sower. And I had not a clue what it was talking about. I thought that the teachers were sowing seeds and that if they took root, that we would produce fruit, and fruit meant prizes. It was speech day, it was prize giving day. And that sort of made sense because some of the kids got no prizes at all. In fact, I should say most of the kids got no prizes at all. Some of the kids got virtually all the prizes every year, and I got one prize. So I got one prize in my whole school career and so I reckoned on that basis that I was about 30-fold. Um, but that's as much sense as it made. But Jesus said that the parable of the sower was the easiest parable to understand. So in Mark 4.13, Jesus says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Well, let's read it together, and maybe we can understand it as we read it. And I'm going to read it in... Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 13, it's in all the synoptic gospels. It's not in the gospel of John, but it's in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But let's re read it in, um, in Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds, crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them in many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky, rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came and the plants were scorched, then they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not hear. Though hearing, they, sorry, so, though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, 
but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one that produces a crop, yielding 60 or 30 times what was sown. Sorry, 100, 60 or 30 times what was sown. Now, I became a Christian at university and I certainly understand the parable of the sower more now than I did then. Um, but it's, it's still a parable. At the end of the day, I think the word of God sometimes comes by uh, revelation. And uh, Augustine once said that I believe so that I may understand. However, it is still a parable. It has still got a, a hidden meaning about it. And many teachers in Jesus' day spoke in parables. And often they spoke more impenetrably to a larger crowd whilst giving the secrets of what they were teaching about to an inner circle of believers. So when asked why, um, when, when Jesus was asked why he spoke in parables, he cross-references Isaiah, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and I would heal them. And you might ask, well, why wouldn't Jesus heal them? And this is one of the two questions that I have about the parable of the sower. And actually, when preparing for this talk, I was still faced with. And the other question is whether this parable teaches that you can actually lose your salvation once you've been saved. How can the doctrine of once saved, always saved be reconciled with the parable of the sower? So both of these are huge subjects and they've occupied theologians for centuries. Um, so of necessity, we can only touch upon them uh, this evening. So first of all, I want to have a, a little think about the, the parable um, before touching upon those questions. And it's, it's also known, as some of you will already be aware, of the as the parable of the four soils. And it's actually, arguably, a description which makes it easier to understand. So the seed is the word of God, and that is incorruptible, unviolable, and in God's kingdom, it's the soil and the maintenance of that soil which will govern whether the seed bears fruit. So the four soils in the, parab in the parable represent the hearts of the listeners. And the heart in the scriptures is analogous to what we might call our minds. It's the, it's the repository of our uh, thoughts and our emotions. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. So I'd like to look at each of these four soils in turn. First of all, the soil falling on the, the wayside or on the path. 
So immediately, with the soil falling on the, the hard soil, the, the, the seed falling on the hard soil, we come across this first question that I posed. Why does Jesus seem to be making it hard for people to be saved? Well, the parable of the sower can't be taken in isolation and taken as a whole. I think scripture is clear that God wants all people to come into a relationship with him. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we're looking here at verse 4 of Matthew 13. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Now, the farmer didn't go to scatter seed on the path because there wouldn't have been much point in doing that. He knew that it wouldn't take root. However, getting some soil on the path was inevitable. And when Jesus was giving this parable, we understand it was to a large crowd. After all, he had to get into a boat uh, while the people were standing on the shore. And the listeners would have comprised uh, those who were listening intently to him, some who were possibly listening carelessly, and some who were even out to get him. And the seed falling on the path represents a hardness of heart, heart, just as the ground of the path is hard. Jesus knew that there would be some who wouldn't be able uh, or could not respond to his word as their hearts were hard. And this might be no, through no fault of their own. People's hearts can be hard as a result of choices they've made, but also as a result of things that have happened to them. There could even be a hardening of the heart to the gospel as a consequence of having heard it too many times and just switching off. So this part of the parable, I think, um, pertains to evangelism and Jesus' command to go and make disciples. And in doing so, we shouldn't be surprised that God's word is rejected. We're reminded in Matthew 17 that broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. However, we should also remember Timothy's injunction to pray and intercede for all people as God wants all to be saved. After all, the farmer could always go and plough over their path, giving the crop soil in which to germinate, and the farmer's ploughing is possibly analogous to our prayer. Finally, before we move on to soil two, it's good to remember Jesus' promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will, will, will see God. So let's have a look at the second soil from Matthew 13, verse 5. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was so shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. In Luke's version of the parable, it says that when the plant came up, it withered because it had no moisture. Apparently, Billy Graham, who saw thousands, tens of thousands, come to Christ 
used to question and he was concerned about the numbers of those believers who stayed the course. Jesus made it hard to hear his word by speaking parables and time and again he stressed the cost of following him, leaving mother and father, selling all you have, abandoning livelihoods. Not that all of us will be required to take all those steps. The point of what Jesus is stressing is that for all of us in our lives, there will be a cost. Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever gains his life for my sake will find it. Because life is tough. And someone once said that you don't need to go looking for your cross, it has a way of finding you. Verse 6, Matthew verse 6 says that when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. However, the sun comes up on all of us and plants need that sun in order to photosynthesize and develop, just as difficulties, trials and tribulations cause us to grow. Not long after Jesus was crucified, converting to Christianity served to increase substantially one's uh, chances of suffering a rather nasty and brutal death. And it's not much different in many parts of the world today. In the liberal West, adherents to Christian values are pilloried and parodied, and one could easily foresee that that could tip into active persecution. And so, if we preach an easy gospel, we preach it at our peril. The parable always says that there will be those who respond to the good news. It is good news, it's very attractive. But will they stay the course? Or will they be what some people have called mushroom Christians springing up overnight, but unable to weather the sunshine and the wind of the next day? So let's, let's have a think about the gardening that we can do in our lives to dig out the rocks and to allow our roots to go deeper. It isn't an exhaustive list and you could give a talk on any one of these. However, there may be a spur which could lead people to further reflection. So the first is not to forget our spiritual disciplines. In particular, to find a good and healthy pattern that works for you, a prayer and reading the Bible, because it's impossible to grow in any relationship without communication. Secondly, watch what you look at and what you think about, being careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.5, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Be obedient. Do what God asks you to do, both in scripture and in your daily walk with the Holy Spirit. Fourth, don't give up on the church. Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And finally, persevere. The Bible is full of verses about perseverance and the resilience and the maturity that flows from this. And we have a high calling. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they may be rooted and established in love. And our roots can't go too deep. It's a lifetime's journey 
we're not called to make converts, we're called to make disciples, and we're asked to be disciples and followers of Jesus. So just one more thought about the, the rocky soil before we move on to soil three. I suppose I, I picture it as a soil with rocks in that can be removed, albeit sometimes with some difficulty. What about when it feels like a, a layer of rock just under the surface, completely impenetrable? That can sometimes be present in our own hearts, sometimes because of something that's happened to us, often of not anything to do with our own fault or our own making. We may feel injustice, anger, hurt or resentment, and we may feel that we are removed from God's presence. We can certainly go through times where we feel like this. Some people have called it the dark night of the soul. However, possibly there's just a chink of light. Many mature Christians, often in years, have often experienced this and they've come through it. And I would encourage you to find the right person to confide in about that loneliness, that feeling of being forsaken, and let that person minister to you and pray for you. Thank goodness we have a saviour who understands, who cried out himself on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible is full of people who have felt separated from God. And the challenge for all of us is at that time to let God into the pain, be honest with him, and keep the lines of communication open and let him minister to you. When life feels overwhelming to me, I have a handing over time just before I go to sleep. And I pray that God will minister to me in my sleep. And thank goodness we live, in, live life in envelopes of one day. Someone said that uh, God can renew us just as he renews his creation. And I think that's right. Many scriptures, many of the Psalms provide a great model of letting God into the pain. Have a look at Psalm 13 in that regard. I'm going to move on to soil three. There's quite a lot to get through in the parable of the sower, so I'm uh, <laughs> cracking on. Um, soil three, I've got a little heading here, which I put down. Um, don't ask God to be popular, famous or rich. I've no idea who said that. Somebody, somebody did. It's quite a well-known thing, but I think it pertains to soil three. So Jesus here refers to someone who hears the word, but the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And Mark 4, the parallel verses, refer to the desire for other things. Luke 8 refers to riches and pleasures. Now, I live out in the sticks, and if any of you have been to my house, you'll know that the garden is pretty wild. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of rewilding, or, or as my wife would possibly say, lazy gardening. However, you have to draw the line at thorns, because if you don't, uh, they'll take over not just the garden, but the whole house. And with our house, it would be like on Day of the Triffids. I don't know if anyone's read the book or seen the film, and the house just disappears altogether. And money can do that to us too, which is difficult because we all need money to provide for our basic needs after all. 
And the deceitfulness of riches is an, an interesting phrase, and it has a slightly different nuance, I think, than the love of money that Paul's letter to Timothy refers to. And I think possibly we let ourselves off the hook a little bit with this phrase, because after all, none of us good Christians would say that we love money, do we? However, in my early days as a Christian, I had rather a stark warning. Uh, I, I, um, I knew somebody who, who clearly did fall into that trap. I was a, a new Christian. I was living, in, living and working in Paris, and I had connections with a church in North London, and the house group leader in that church, his name was Pete. And Pete was in his mid-twenties, and he was already a very successful businessman. A uh, very bright guy, capable man. Uh, he'd been brought up a Christian, and I thought he had what appeared to be a really solid faith. On one of his business trips, he came to Paris, and we met up for a meal. And he told me of his plans to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. And I was impressed and worried in equal measure. But I didn't have the courage at the time to challenge him in what seemed to be one of his primary goals. So life moved on and I lost touch with Pete. However, I do know what happened to him because it was all over the national press, unfortunately. So in order, millionaire, divorced, bankrupt, remarried, and then he became the country's first double bigamist. I don't quite know how he managed that, but he did, and he ended up in prison for quite some time. Now, only God knows the secret of Pete's heart. However, in hindsight, there were some pretty whopping warning signs. <laughs> I suppose for most of us, it's, it's a little bit more invidious uh, than that. If one substitutes the phrase love of money with trust in money, one possibly understands the problem a little bit better. It's so tempting to think, all of us to think, that if only we had this amount of savings or that financial cushion, that our worries would be over. And I'm certainly not exempt, and it requires an awful lot of wisdom to navigate through all this business, because God is a God of order, and God is a God of planning, and financial planning is within God's economy, so to speak. However, we do need to balance that with Jesus's admonition. Do not worry, saying what we should eat, what we should wear, but seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. So how much is too much money? Well, I suppose it's too much if trusting God is replaced. And for one person, that may be a thousand pounds. And for another person, it may be a million pounds. There's so much one could say about money, but no time. Uh, I've, I've, I've had a, a lot of experience working with very wealthy people. And my experience is that they never have enough. They always need a little more. It's always relative to other people and it's always vulnerable to loss. It becomes the center of people's world around which everything must bow down. Friendships, marriages, 
relationship to God, rather than God being at the centre of our lives around which other things resolve. The good thing is that we can restructure no matter how far we've gone down this path. Any gardener will tell you that removing thorns and weeds is hardly a one-off event. In fact, it's almost every time you walk down the garden path, you've got to keep an eye out, see what's growing. Thorns are really tenacious and difficult to get out. And they, they can grow from their roots sometimes to 20 or 30 feet. And then you find that the growing end has itself rooted itself in the soil and you're left with a loop which then begins sprouting. Impossible. But the fact is they can and they must be removed. So how can we do that? Well, again, we could talk for another hour on remedial measures. Um, just a couple of suggestions for your consideration. First of all, be alive to the deceitfulness of wealth. There's a reason why Jesus had more to say about money than any other subject and why others have described it as a touchstone of our spiritual lives. Number two, ensure that our core identity is found in him. Money can often be used as a, a soulish attempt to create an image or create an identity. Three, be content with God's provision for your life. Pursuing those things outside of the dominion of God, that car, that house, that marriage, that relationship, can lead to adultery, manipulation, to achieve ends, and a divided heart. And at the very best, the pursuit of these things consumes energy that we should be using to pursue our spiritual wealth. Fourth, start giving and serving others. Um, we have a scriptural mandate to do that, but it also takes the focus off our own needs and onto the needs of others. So finally, what about those other things referred to in Mark 4 or the pleasures in Luke 8? Scripture describes God as our portion, our all-sufficient one, and this is the place that he wants in our lives. This is clear from the Ten Commandments, where he describes himself as a jealous God who desires people to love and follow him with an undivided heart. Some of you will have read Richard Foster's book on money, sex and power. Looking for nods? No nods? It's a good book. These overlap and money is often used to facilitate and obtain the other two. And that's the way our fallen world works and what the devil uses to ensnare us. And we ignore, it's easy to ignore that reality, but we ignore it at our peril. And the thorns are a symptom of our fallen world in which we are called to live, but we are called to live in it as ambassadors for his kingdom and not citizens of the world. So I suppose we've been talking about money because we live in a relatively rich uh, Western society. But it's interesting, Matthew Henry in his Bible commentary makes a valid point and he says, many who have little of the abundance of this world may yet be ruined by indulging the body and other things. So it ain't just money. Let's move on to the fourth soil, the good soil, 
yielding 30, 60 or 100 fold. Well, this part of the parable is clearly talking about Christians, but you'll note that there's a huge difference between 30 fold increase and 100 fold increase. I read somewhere when I was preparing for this talk that farmers think that a sevenfold increase is good. So there's something a little bit miraculous even about a 30 fold increase. But what, what is the return? What is the fruitfulness? Is it the number of souls that we've won for Jesus? Well, that'd be okay for Billy Graham. I sincerely hope for my own sake that it's more than that. So possibly it's the fruit of the spirit. Whew, that would be a relief in one sense, although my wife and children might feel that I was equally vulnerable. Perhaps it's left deliberately vague. However, there are a few threads of scripture that we can pull together which might help us understand fruitfulness. So both Jesus and James in uh, the book of James encourages us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. James 1 verses 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Jesus indicates that it's not enough just to be fruitful. It's not enough just to be righteous. We must hold forth the word of truth to all those around us. It's in Matthew 5, 15 to 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So finally, persevere. Carry on seeking God. Carry on doing good. Don't give up. Carry on gardening. It sounds a bit like a Hattie Jakes film, doesn't it? <laughs> the other day I heard the end of a Radio 4 thought for the day and I have no idea who was speaking or whether she was a Christian, but she said, what is it to bear fruit? Be the best you that you, be the best you, that you can be. Much resilience needed. And I thought, I can't disagree with that. After all, Luke's version in the parable of the sower Luke 8 verses 15 says, but the seed on the good soil stands for those who with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by perseverance produce a crop. Now, does the noble and the good heart mean that there are no, no weeds and no stones? I don't think so. It certainly doesn't mean that it's not exposed to the sunshine, to the trials and tribulations of the world. In a very real sense, we need them to make us stronger, painful though it may be at the time. There are many verses that I could have chosen around perseverance throughout the New and the Old Testament, but again, Jesus, sorry, James sums it up pithily. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So gardening is hard work. It's time consuming and it's usually our responsibility. But I also have a gardener who comes around now and again. And he's got some serious big machinery. So he's got a chainsaw which can get through logs that my chainsaw can't get through. And he's got some pruning shears that can reach the trees that my pruning shears can't get anywhere near. And 
that may make you think, in some way, may have, many of you will be familiar with the image of God as our Father, the gardener. Have a look at John 15. So God gives us salvation freely, but if we want to bear fruit, we need to play our part in it. Partnering with him, sometimes taking an active role in our spiritual discipline, removing weeds from our lives, sometimes allowing him to prune us and to heal us, sometimes allowing him to point things out so that we can deal with them. And this is the path to fruitfulness. It's what it is to walk in the spirit. The sad reality is that few Christians lead productive spiritual lives. We shouldn't be surprised by this. It was ever thus, and it's the core message of this parable, or one of the core messages. And if we aspire to buck the trend, and the church desperately needs people who will buck that trend, we need to realize that there will be times when we struggle, when we fail. Because even St. Paul had to confess, I do not understand what I do. For what I do, I do not want to do, but what I hate, I do. The difference between St. Paul and many of us is that he didn't give up. Paul knew the power of God's forgiveness. He knew the righteousness of Christ and he knew the power that we have over sin in the name of Christ. He knew the value of perseverance. I'd like just to end this section by reciting an old American tale called The Story of Two Dogs. It's only short. An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy, a terrible fight between two dogs. One is evil. He's anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy and peace and love and humility and hope and kindness, goodness, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and every other person too. And the grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which, which dog's going to win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. And if we've been feeding the wrong dog, anger, envy, sorrow, this dog will sooner or later reveal itself to be a ferocious beast that can overwhelm us overwhelm our lives and stop us bearing fruit. The good news is that in Christ, and sometimes with the help of another believer, we can in turn slay that dog and consign him to where he belongs and start to see the fruit and joy and peace that God desires for us. Now, to finish this talk, I want to touch very briefly on the area that I've always been a bit perplexed about. Does the parable of the sower teach us that we can lose our salvation? After all, those who believe that clearly point to the parable as evidence of the fact that we can lose our salvation. And in real life, I suppose, the farmer can only actually use the crop that survives to the end. The rest is simply lost. 
The more one reads about this subject, the more one realises that these arguments, these theological arguments, have echoed down the centuries. And in very simple terms, those who believe in the uh, doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, so that's once saved, always saved, uh, to you and me, are often referred to as the reformists, although I understand that that is a broader term. And it's interesting to read how this parable fits into their theology. Many, including perhaps most famously Calvin, would have argued that it's only the seed planted in the good soil that represents Christians. He felt that soils one, two, and three represented unbelievers. And he would cite biblical examples of Simon the magician and the crowds who turned away from Jesus when Jesus' teaching became hard to support his case. And in this way, the parable of the sower is no problem at all for Calvin because he believes that uh, it's only the third soil, it's only the good soil that represents Christians. However, many other reformed theologians, so um, people who believe once saved, always saved, they found Calvin's arguments difficult to accept. And one of the main reasons for this is Luke's rendering of the parable. So Luke says in Luke 8 verses 12, those along the path are those who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So he's talking about the soil falling on the rocky ground, on the, um, on, on, on the hard ground. So the implication from that is that the soil on the rocky ground and the soil amongst the thorns and the soil on the good soil, that they are all saved. So then the parable becomes a problem again for these other reformed thinkers because can they lose that salvation? Well, summarizing centuries of heated debate and at the risk of oversimplifying matters, <laughs> they deal with this by drawing a distinction between our salvation and the fruit that we bear or the works that we carry out for God. They would refer to our salvation as being a binary state, either we're saved or we're not saved, a binary state. So uh, they would refer to Ephesians 2, uh, being dead as opposed to alive in Christ, to Matthew 12, 30, being, being Jesus' enemy versus being reconciled to God, Ephesians 2, 19, 2, 19, being strangers to God versus citizens of heaven, of heaven. They'd also draw a distinction between um, the first judgment in Revelation, which requires our name to be written in the book of life, and the second judgment, which is based on works. There's many scriptures outside of this parable which uh, are used to make these arguments. Uh, perhaps the key one for them is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15, which I will just read. So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. If anyone believes, sorry, if anyone builds on this foundation, that is Jesus, using gold, silver, or costly things, wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. 
if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even as though one escaping through the flames. Now, if one accepts that analysis, which certainly works for me, what do we make of the parable in conclusion? It certainly speaks to both the areas of evangelism and sanctification. In some ways, it tempers our expectations. We shouldn't be surprised that many refuse to accept the gospel. And we should also not be surprised that many who do choose God and are citizens of heaven do not bear as much fruit as they could possibly. It's a salutary warning, an exhaustion to pray for the hearts of those who come into contact with the gospel. I heard someone say about our children who are not yet Christians that the most important thing that we can pray for them is that their hearts remain soft. Finally, there's a warning for what we need to look out for in our own lives. The good news is that with God's help, we can keep the soil in good condition, put down roots, persevere, and have spiritually productive lives. Perhaps we could just pray. Lord, we pray that we would be people who desire to buck the trend. Thank you for your promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Give us the courage and perseverance to address these issues in our own life that would hold us back. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.